Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Doug Stewart from LibertarianChristians.com, now the Libertarian Christian Institute. With me today is the founder, Norman Horn, board member, Jason Rink, and our executive director, Nick Gausling. At LibertarianChristians.com, we have a fairly extensive FAQ section with topics on the Bible, government, and morality. Today, we want to discuss some of questions that you, our supporters, have asked us to address. Before we begin, though, I want to note that whenever we speak on a particular topic, it's impossible to say everything at once, including the things we're not implying by our answer. So cut us a little bit of slack if we can't elaborate forever on something that we talk about. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask some questions for maybe a future episode or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. So hey guys, you ready to jump in with some questions? Absolutely. Ready to rock, man. So we have Mark via Facebook asks, in what ways is libertarianism biblical? In what ways does libertarianism deviate from Christian values? So I'll take that one at first. Libertarianism at its core operates in a parallel fashion uh, to to. Uh, to the Bible or to Christian theology, it's not something that we that we automatically derive uh, from Scripture in the same way that we don't automatically derive things like mathematics or economics or natural sciences uh, from from biblical uh, revelation. But what we find is that the principles that we discover regarding politics and ethics are congruent and convergent with what we are revealed in the Bible and the things that we understand via Christian theology. In what ways does libertarianism deviate from Christian values? I would say not very much at all, if anything. Uh, the, the key here is that not all of us understand or express libertarianism or necessarily even Christian theology in a perfect way. What we do understand is that, again, in the same way that if I make a uh, a mistake in mathematics, and I don't re- and I don't recognize it at first. Maybe I, I perpetuate that error for a while. It doesn't refute or get rid of the idea of why mathematics is important or why the fundamental principles work. But rather, we are we are figuring it out uh, through uh, reason and through uh, through practice, through discovery. And these are things that we understand via, uh, as well via theology and by natural ethics or libertarianism in this case. So we see them primarily as working together in tandem or in parallel or it, it, we might say uh, – and one of the things I like to say is that libertarianism is concordant with Christian thought. So Nick, you are familiar with the early church fathers and – I would want to know, what do you think about this question? Is libertarianism biblical? Would the early church fathers have any libertarianism streak in them, or is that just anachronistic to call it that? Yeah, I mean, the label itself, of course, wouldn't have been in use at that time, but I think a lot of the the principles that we today associate with uh, libertarianism can certainly be found in the, in the church fathers. You know, the 
the way the early Christians kind of saw themselves was as an alternate community. So they were living in the world where Christ was king and he had brought the eschatological kingdom, which was now to be lived out through the church. So they saw themselves as being a part of the world as it still uh, still stood before the final consummation of the ages. Nevertheless, there was something unique. There was something different about what had happened with the advent of Christ. And they believed that they were called into this new community under a new king. And that the ethic of that new kingdom was non-coercive. That it was about love and ministry and service to your neighbor. Uh, and of course, when when we talk about things like, like that, we don't mean in the sort of new agey way of love, but genuine Christ-centered love and service to your neighbor uh, and and being a beacon to the world. And as a result of that, uh, they were very, very skeptical of anything involving the state. Um, you know, obviously, there were there were converts who who were in state positions within the early church. Um, but those who were, for example, in uh, the military were encouraged to resign their positions, or at least they were forbidden to uh, engage in war. Um, and some people would say that uh, the reason for that is because the military in ancient Rome, and really the state in general, was was sort of bound up with the emperor cult, with um, Mithraism and these other sort of pagan religions. But as, as it, the, it was seen in, in the first century, I mean, you couldn't separate these things and go, oh, well, that was the reason. The reason they couldn't be part of the state is just because of the idolatry. These were sort of inseparable things that uh, the early Christians and, and also the pagans saw as, as going together. And so for the church fathers, uh, separating from the world system while still being a witness to the world and living in the world, uh, a, a key component of that was not uh, giving homage to the old way of doing things, and that, that included the state. So, you know, all, all, that, all that is to kind of say that, yes, uh, the, the philosophy with which they approached their entire worldview was never – Let's use the state to get what we want. Let's use the state to uh, redistribute wealth or go after people we think we should go after. It was always based on uh, what can we do as the people of God to make the world a better place and show that there's a better way. You know, I just want to say, don't you think at the heart of this question, though, it, it, we really need to sort of define libertarianism um, at the outset, meaning – I think if you pay attention to discussions that are happening in the libertarian space out there right now, um, there's a there are very narrow and then very broad definitions of what maybe libertarianism is. And so I think at its at its narrowest sense, which is uh, libertarianism, which defines the legitimate or illegitimate use of power and coercion when it comes to, uh, our interaction with one another in society and the state's interaction with us in society, um, then I think libertarianism is entirely biblical. Um, and so, but but I think people come to this discussion 
with not a fully formed or maybe an incorrect definition of what libertarianism might be. And so people tend to take maybe the platform of the libertarian party or their this particular libertarian individual that they know and say, well, this this person is, you know, libertine or they have certain moral or ethical positions that aren't congruent with biblical Christianity. Well, that wouldn't necessarily be a reflection of libertarianism as a philosophy. So uh, at the Libertarian Christian Institute, we definitely believe that uh, libertarianism is congruent with biblical Christianity and that uh, to the question of whether libertarianism deviates from Christian values, um, I think that's more of a question of how do we explain or how do we um, – bring into harmony some positions that either, you know, that libertarian politicians or libertarian organizations might have on certain issues that deviate from Christian values. And I think that's an important question because we encounter positions in libertarianism that seem to be contradictory to Christian values. Do you guys want to talk about any of those particular yeah, uh, I think we have- deviations? I think we have a, a pretty potent example of what you just described in the conversation that Norman had, I think it was last year, with Al Mohler, in that Al Mohler was during this, it was sort of a exchange, sort of moderated on, on a podcast, and Al Mohler kept insisting that because libertarianism supposedly, in his mind, was an all-encompassing worldview, that's why it was incompatible with Christian thought. And Norman had to clarify over and over again what the extent of what what were the grounds of I'm sorry, what are the boundaries of libertarianism in terms of its uh, reach? Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why perhaps people on the left or even really conservative Christians sort of look at libertarianism and Christian libertarianism and say, well, you have a conflict of interest here because this is how I see libertarianism and this is how I see what it means to be biblical and think through politics. And a lot of times there's a lot of just unclarity as to what what each really believes. So Norman, I'm guessing that was a kind of a frustrating interaction for you because you weren't trying to be all encompassing with what you meant by I'm a libertarian. Absolutely. And I think it's worthy of pointing out, I think especially as far away as we have been from from that conversation that happened in uh, early 2016, so just about a year ago. It's amazing how if you are involved in a particular kind of uh, philosophical or political movement um, that you become very willing at times to point out something uh, that another uh, that somebody in a different philosophical or political movement uh, says or does as being completely representative of that re- that movement whatsoever, but that the aberrations within your own. Uh, are are just that they're aberrations, and uh, unfortunately, I feel that that oftentimes that's what happens, and uh, and we should be careful not to do that to other people, mind you. We shouldn't do that to Republicans slash conservatives or Democrats slash uh, neoliberals or or whatnot, uh, because we don't want to be treated like that either. And I think that's what Al Mohler was doing then uh, that they that they 
sometimes these anti-libertarian Christians uh, want to point out, well, you know, this guy is a libertine and and claims libertarianism. That must mean that you're you guys are a bunch of hooey. Um, well, that's that's a false way of of arguing, and uh, and we don't like that when people do that about Christians, and we shouldn't as libertarians and Christian libertarians in particular do that to other people either. Right, and you know he brought up he brought up Ayn Rand, which we'll get to in a future question here, and that that probably was a little irksome as well because <laughs> quite. <laughs> if well. you can't hear my frustration in that in that, <laughs> pot, in that uh, recording, uh, listen closer. I think it was so. the only deep breath that we heard from you in that. <laughs> like, oh, okay. probably was. <laughs> so on here to, we go again. <laughs> yeah, right. On the next question, we have uh, another person. John wrote in from Facebook. How might a Christian libertarian perspective differ from a secular or humanistic-based libertarian perspective? Nick, do you want to tackle this? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I always kind of observed back when I was in my uh, earlier political years, when I was doing semi-professional and and professional politicking, uh, is that I was around a lot of other libertarians who lined up with me on economics and on what should be done in foreign policy and all these sorts of practical policy applications, but our ethics were widely uh, divergent. And I encountered a lot of people who, in the political realm, I have a great deal of of respect for, but when you start digging down into their philosophy, I mean, they they seem to think that, you know, the biggest problems in in the world uh, have to do with the fact that they can't smoke marijuana legally, you know? I mean, and yeah, that's an issue. Uh, as libertarians, we would favor uh, decriminalization. But, I mean, for some people who don't have a Christian worldview, that's that's like everything to them is is that sort of thinking. And really, when you reflect on it, and we're actually going to talk about this in a, in a forthcoming episode here on spiritual warfare, but What's going on in the fabric of our world is ultimately a spiritual battle. We're talking about the kingdom of God, who is the rightful king of the world, versus the kingdom of darkness. And everything we see uh, that is an extension of sin, including the state, uh, is, is really emanating from the kingdom of darkness. And so to somebody who doesn't have that that perspective that we have from knowing the Word of God, uh, they, they can only think in strictly human categories. And so they don't even know who the real enemy is. And the, the advantage uh, and, and, and the blessing we have here as Christian libertarians is that by the grace of God, we know that sin, Satan, death, the world, the flesh, the devil, those are the real enemies. And everything we see in statism, in tyrannical governments, uh, in, in war, all of it is emanating from those more fundamental spiritual issues. And so as Christian libertarians, having that perspective, we can really apply the word of God to the work we're doing and know that it's it's not in vain. Uh, even if we, we struggle to win policy battles or things like that, the, the kingdom of God is ultimately going to triumph. And 
in, in order to really make those kind of reforms that we would like to see in the world as libertarians, we have to start by looking into the sin in our own hearts, uh, in our families, in our churches, in our local communities, and really being able to uh, live that out so as to be a light to others. And that, I think, is the real fundamental distinctive between a Christian libertarian and uh, a secular libertarian. And that's not to knock my secular libertarian friends at all. I have many of them who are very good friends. Uh, but it, the, the bottom line is, if you don't know the Word of God, if you don't know the Lord, uh, then you don't really know the true enemy that you're facing. Something that I've thought about on this topic is, you know, I view my Christian faith, uh, my Christian worldview, sort of like my operating system. And it's the baseline operating system of my life. It is the it is what I compare all other things to to see if they are congruent or if they will they'll work, you know, with that operating system. And I see libertarianism as an app that, you know, operates on top of that operating system, right? So, and it's congruent and I bring that in and then that informs. So my, my Christian faith and worldview and the tenets of the kingdom of God inform the way that I live my life. And then libertarianism is this additional sort of app or another lens that I see the world through and it doesn't override anything in my operating system. You know, my operating system is the primary and it tr it trumps everything. And so libertarianism, uh, which is totally congruent with my operating system, uh, that that works. And so the way that I act as a libertarian is congruent with the way that I act as a Christian. With somebody who has a secular operating system, uh, you know, libertarianism operates and works with that as well. You don't have to have uh, a Christian ethical system or a secular ethical system uh, in order to function as a libertarian. But those, those differing operating systems will lead us to different conclusions about certain political positions that we might take, uh, certain things that certain certain opinions that we have about how we're going to interact with other people in the world and ultimately the importance maybe that we put on these political battles and fights and realize that those are secondary to the larger spiritual um, battle and struggle that's happening um, and that's playing out you know in the world. I think that's kind of a good setup for the next question. Uh, Jesse from Facebook says, what should Christian libertarians think about militant atheists or seculars that vehemently attack Christianity? What do you think? Well, you know, that is uh, ultimately a question about what is the position that we are to have as Christians towards other human beings, no matter who they are. And, you know, the primary um, the primary uh, approach that we're to have is is that of love. And, you know, I think um, Martin Luther King Jr. has a really great speech that he gave uh, on Christmas in 1957, I believe. And um, he talks about how, you know, as Christians, 
when we when we come up against somebody who might see the see us as an enemy to them or um you know is is opposes what we do even persecutes us in that way you know our duty as a christian is to love them and to try to see their humanity and to befriend them and find a way to win them over as a human being and see them um you know, see the the image of God in them, though marred, um, as we all are. And that, you know, that insight that Martin Luther King Jr. had when he was, you know, being personally attacked, the church and house was being bombed, like the KKK was like, you know, on the march and like, re, you know, physically abusing, um, you know, minorities and all of this sort of thing. And And that was his position. And it's, it echoes, you know, Jesus's uh, position when he when he taught us, you know, where to love our enemies and where to bless those and pray for those that persecute us. And I think in our Christian, in our world, sometimes we see that love your enemy uh, admonition from Jesus, and we think, yeah, I do need to love that person at church that annoys me or that coworker I don't really like. And, you know, Jesus is talking about the people who are going to crucify him. Um, You know, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do when he's on the cross, you know. So he's talking about the people that are most uh, antagonistic to the message of Christ and the person of Christ and the mission of Christ and the kingdom of God. And so when we look at that in our own economy now, it's like, who are the enemies that, you know, Christians or the church looks out into the culture and sees and says, that's the enemy of Christianity? I think many times the, the way that a lot of Christians and churches act, it's like, oh, it's Muslims and homosexuals and it's all of these, these people and atheists and uh, people who, you know— live their lives, you know, you know, in ways that are not, you know, congruent with the Bible, which, you know, God doesn't even expect people who are lost to live in accordance with the Bible. That's not, that's not even, wouldn't even make sense. You know, we're not even empowered to live in accordance with the teachings of Christ without the Holy Spirit. And so I think that our position to those that are antagonistic to the message of Christianity is love and to try to find opportunities of common ground and common humanity to relate to those people on so that we can have an audience with them, that we can build relationships with them, and that we can win them and definitely not take the position of of humiliating them or attacking them or making them feel like they are, you know, idiotic or making them feel like they're um, outside of the club, so to speak. So that's that's my position on that. Yeah, it seems like, and again, we're not. You were kind of addressing people who are militant atheists uh, in general, but I have met uh, libertarians who are pretty atheistic and have no room for a, a, a theistic perspective. And you know, as Nick sort of referred to earlier, we have there's some common ground there. For us to have, we have a common enemy, whether they have it named or not, and or maybe they refuse to name it as you know the Satan or something like that. 
having a common enemy means that you can join forces to some extent and work toward a common good in the libertarian realm. And what that might do in terms of, you know, getting a little bit better reputation on behalf of Christians is the libertarian Christian can demonstrate that political consistency does not mean that we have to ban gay marriage or that we have to build a wall or that we have to, you know, enforce things that traditionally conservative Christians are known for insisting that we, you know, prohibit legally and things like that. So it's a it can be an opportunity to reach out to those who are kind of anti-Christian, but we still have this like join arms on the libertarian side of things, uh, be kind of a good opportunity for us. Let me mention that some of these questions, if you are listening and you were one of the ones who submitted them, we have edited your questions for brevity and clarity. And so the wording isn't isn't perfect as to what we received, but we wanted to make sure that uh, what we understood the question to be was was rephrased for, for listeners who weren't in your mind as you wrote the question in. So as we go on to the next one, we have John again on Facebook. What might a Christian libertarian perspective have to say about Ayn Rand's objectivism? This was a uh, an objection that Al Mohler brought to you, Norman. And so I'm going to let you start the discussion on Ayn Rand from a Christian perspective with you. Uh, yeah, so this is something that a lot of people seem to sort of forget, I suppose, because in many respects, you know, there's even a book titled, it, it usually begins with Ayn Rand. And and to be quite frank, a lot of people do, uh, secular libertarians in particular, get involved as libertarians um, from starting off by reading Ayn Rand. But that's not always the case, uh, first of all, and it's not necessarily uh, something that should be identified as the only way or the most important way that one gets involved in, and uh, learns about libertarian ideas. In fact, Ayn Rand herself didn't really like libertarians all that much and uh, often said that they were philosophically uh, bankrupt and things such as that. Um, one of our uh, more prominent libertarians that we should probably be referencing far more often, Murray Rothbard, was once a friend of Ayn Rand and respected her, but ultimately broke with her on the basis of that she uh, actually attacked his wife, <laughs> uh, verbally at least. And, uh, and that, uh, like any good husband should do, uh, you know, he said, I've had enough of this, and he left. Uh, and, and Murray Rothbard went on to really become, of course, the, arguably the, the greatest libertarian of our generations, uh, you know, near, near and dear to our hearts, along with, with greats like, Mer, like uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises uh, and others uh, who have come after them. Um, and who we are much more indebted to on a philosophical basis than we are Ayn Rand. Fundamentally, the, 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 the key point here is that Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism is meant to be a more comprehensive worldview. And insofar as uh, it, it rejects Christian values, it is something that we obviously will not have a part in as Christians. Now, there are people who have written some interesting essays, books, and whatnot and about the touch points of objectivist ideas and Christian ideas. I'm thinking of people like Mark Henderson's book uh, like uh, called The Soul of Atlas. Um, we've had a few other essays uh, written on libertarianchristians.com that address this in some manner, and you'll find these uh, written upon occasion in popular media as well. Uh, and we don't want to necessarily just jettison 
uh, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's influence. But ultimately, we recognize that Ayn Rand is only a part of libertarian influences, and she goes far beyond in her own philosophy than what libertarianism claims as, as the boundaries and and limits of what it uh, proposes as a proper way of of thinking about power and force in society. Um, but there are other useful things, you know, to think about uh, and and to uh, to appreciate about Rand um, as well. And and uh, you know, for instance, her love of capitalism. Um, but that doesn't mean that we will accept her philosophy, that we think that her explication about atheism and, and whatnot is somehow valid. Obviously, we don't think that is true. And we don't believe that that philosophy a, as a worldview is something that Christians ought to adopt in, in whole. You know, this is um, this touches on something that, you know, I just have noticed about um, libertarians who, again— I have a lot of friends who are libertarians who are not Christians um, and, you know, love them and we work together on all sorts of different things and, and it's great. But libertarianism is not a substitute for uh, a worldview uh, that will satisfy the deepest needs of our soul and, you know, the answer to the questions of what's going to happen before, um, after we die and what's our purpose here on earth and all of the deepest questions that we have as people and as human beings are not answered through libertarianism. And so when people don't have a worldview and a belief system that addresses and satisfies the deepest questions that we have as human beings, what I've found is that people tend to want to expand libertarianism or they adopt a form of libertarianism. Uh, and I'm speaking strictly of libertarians who don't have a Christian worldview or a religious worldview of any kind, tend to find a way for libertarianism to sort of be expanded to satisfy some of those other needs they have for a comprehensive worldview about life and purpose and all of these other things. And so I find objectivism to sort of be in that category as far as being a libertarianism plus type philosophy. This has been a, a trend I've seen in the thick versus thin libertarianism where I've just yeah. seen like, oh, you're just trying to expand libertarianism yeah. to something that's also going to satisfy this other thing that you want out of life, which libertarianism doesn't satisfy. And right. oh, by the way, you think room. religion's for yeah. It can make room right. for it, but it doesn't provide it. Right, exactly. Yeah. When I read Atlas Shrugged, I read it about five years ago, and this past summer I read The Fountainhead. And what was interesting is I was also reading another book um, that explained that similar to the way that many economists or people who are in the libertarian frameworks sort of say that you need to read Adam Smith's Inquiry into Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments to sort of understand the whole Adam Smith – these authors were suggesting that you really can't understand Rand unless you have read both Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. I think most people read things like Atlas Shrugged and they get a little turned off by a few things and they don't have – and then either they just don't pick up any other Rand books or um, they don't you know, pay attention enough to see it. But something that's interesting about – Rand's characters is while someone like Howard Rourke is kind of a larger than life sort of person, 
he refuses to compromise on, you know, his most cherished beliefs. And some of those beliefs are, you know, that Rand inserts into these kind of comes from the Christian tradition around her. And that is that the idea of the individual is sacred and inviolable. So Rand doesn't believe that man is an end to anything other than himself or herself and not the means not the means to another's ends. And so in so far as she believes that, there's some compatibility there. Um, one of the things that is has I've thought of over the years after reading Atlas Shrugged is what would happen if all the all the makers, all the producers, all of the productive people in society leave. The people who invented things, not just invented things like the light bulb, but invented processes by which manufacturing becomes more efficient, or they are the leaders in industries that revolutionize that that industry. What happens if they either if they just left? Not just and and obviously they can leave and you know their ideas live on with us, and so someone else could just kind of pick that up. But what if they just decided, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore, and we're going to take our our goods which is their mind, which is their ability to change the world, what if they just went on strike? Because that's what happens in Atlas Shrugged. Sorry for those of you who haven't read it yet. That's what happens in Atlas Shrugged. They withdraw from a world, and it essentially demands their self-immolation, which is sort of like Ayn Rand's odd version of altruism. So there's this really interesting dynamic there that, you know, people that appear really selfish by just withdrawing from society, they're really just refusing to compromise their most cherished beliefs that we are not the means to another person's end. And just for our listeners, um, you know, uh, benefit, I think we need to post a spoiler spoiler alert in the uh, show notes or at the beginning of the podcast, because even though Atlas Shrugged was published 60 years ago, those who haven't read it, we want to make sure we don't ruin the uh, ruin that part of the story for them. Yeah, sorry, Norman. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> well, there has no, been a it's... movie, so those are the people who are just like, <laughs> wow, that book's really thick. Oh, wait, I could have watched the movie instead. <laughs> right. The best so. is like the 90-page diatribe in, in the book. Yeah. It's just like there's a lot there is a <laughs> lot of good in that <laughs> there's a lot of good in that book um i will admit and uh if those of you who are listening who are kind of like wow that is a really thick book with really small print the audiobook the unabridged audiobook is very well performed and i did all 60 hours of it and i enjoyed it thoroughly that's what i did too that's i actually convenient. listened to it I listened to it as I was moving from Ohio to Austin. I was driving an RV. And I think it took like the entire 19 hours probably. <laughs> yeah. Did you listen to it at three times the speed? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did it while well, I remodeled our basement. So, yeah. I, I will confess that I watched Atlas Shrugged Part 1, the movie, while basically holding my infant son. It was probably about, well, it's getting on the order of, nearly four years ago now. So, but. Was that the first movie he ever, quote, watched? Was Atlas Shrugged? No. That would be amazing if it was. He's destined to be a libertarian now. <laughs> okay, so do we, are we, what's the next question? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. So our next question is from Sven. 
on Facebook again. As a Christian libertarian, what is a reasonable stance on gay marriage? This is a very interesting question. We've been answering this in much more uh, lengthy descriptions, I should, I should add, on libertarianchristians.com, Libertarian Christian Institute for years now. And so there's plenty of resources out there uh, on the website where, uh, where you can learn more about this and about the way we think about it, um, and including, mind you, an interesting debate that uh, that once uh, that I once did at uh, Patrick Henry College a few years ago, uh, that you can watch a video about uh, on that, and that was, it's pretty good stuff. Um, so let me just you know give you kind of the brief answer, and uh, and and let you, and let the show notes link you to plenty more resources there. Um, the simple the simplest answer really is that the government really ought not to be involved in marriage to begin with. If the government has any responsibility at all in the in this arena, then it is just to recognize the validity of uh, the right to contract. And from from the state's perspective at the at the most the the state should uh, or the state ought to only be recognizing contracts. Um, and can and to for from the state's perspective, marriage is a contract. Now, as a Christian, we believe that marriage is much more than that as well. We we see it as a as a very uh, spiritual connection in addition. Um, but that just be but just because we believe that and practice that in our communities in our churches uh, does not give us the right to tell other people how they are how they are permitted uh, to organize and write out their contracts. And so, you know, we we really can't expect that we can just write the rules for them in this regard. If they want to arrange a contract in, in a different way, then that's permissible. They ought to be able to do that. Um, but in return, of course, we're not necessarily uh, obligated to recognize uh, in, you know, the, and respect uh, their, their beliefs in exactly the way uh, that, they, that they define as well. And this is just the this is the right of, or the liberty of conscience that we all experience as well. Now, again, there's a lot that can, more that can be said there about uh, kind of the legal position and whatnot, but that's sort of the basics of it. One of the larger questions that, as Christian libertarians, but as Christians, really we need to ask ourselves is why should we expect the state to? validate or invalidate things that we believe are true regardless. So uh, again, this goes back to sort of the whole operating system idea. It's, you know, I believe that God is the final arbiter of what's true. And yet I don't expect or require or need uh, the state to validate any of those truths or any of those positions about any issue. Uh, the state doesn't have the power to validate or invalidate any position that, you know, I believe that God has or that he instructs us to take as Christians. So on the whole issue of whether or not um, gay marriage, you know, and in, in the whole position of, of homosexuality or anything, what where does that fit in? Well, the real question is, uh, what, why does what the state says about the issue really matter for us as Christians? And I don't think it does. And to Norman's point on the marriage issue, yes, it's just really whether or not individuals have the right to contract 
uh, when it comes to this issue and whether or not the state should be the one that should be able to say whether or not two people can contract in a particular way. And as libertarians, you know, we say that the state should be as far away from issues that are as personal as these. And the more personal that issues are and the more individual that issues are, the less that government should be involved in those issues as a general rule. And so, uh, so yeah, but my, my main point was just that um, I think many times Christians are looking for the state uh, to sort of validate their positions. Hey, we need to make sure that the president uh, enforces the Christian position on something or the Supreme Court, uh, sub, uh, you know, uh, validates the Christian position. And, and yet that's totally unimportant because whether or not the state agrees with the Bible or agrees with God is irrelevant. So we had two people ask about what is probably the most hot topic about libertarianism and Christianity, and this is about abortion. So I'll read it. This is from Joel and Bill. As a Christian, we would like to see the least amount of abortion possible. As a libertarian, we find that the government is paying for things like contraceptives, and we think it's wrong because taxation is theft and all that jazz. However, if it is shown that contraception decreases abortion— and the use of contraception increases when they are free due to government payment, should a libertarian Christian support free contraception in order to lower the abortion rate? Well, the first thing I have to say to that is, of course, Tanstoffel, the classic Robert Heinlein phrase, you know, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, the fact is, is that, you know, I know I, I, when we say it's free contraception or it's free due to government, well, it's not really free. Somebody's paying for it. And, of course, you know, that would suggest, well, that the government doesn't produce anything. Uh, it has to come from the taxpayers. And if we believe that taxation is theft, then we ought not to support it, uh, to, to support that type of thing from, from the outset. Because we don't know what the consequences – like we can't just use a consequentialist argument here in order to, uh, to abrogate a fundamental principle. Um, so, you know, that being said – uh, there are plenty of other ways in which we could envision, uh, say, you know, reducing the number of abortions uh, without resorting to government payouts of some type and that type of government theft in, in order to, to get the, the consequence that we want. And, uh, and in fact, there, there are a number of ways in which, you know, Christians have in the past uh, reached out to, uh, pregnant, uh, to pregnant women who are uh, you know, who are questioning whether or not they ought to go through with an abortion and, uh, and they help them and they try to help, they begin to help them understand what they're doing and why it's important to, to protect, to protect life. And I think that's, that's really kind of the, where, where we can go here is that really when it comes down to it, what we're asking the state to do oftentimes with, you know, even, even if when we want to prevent abortions, if we keep wanting to, uh, ratchet up the power of the state in order to prevent, oftentimes it, we have a counterproductive problem that we're using a, a just one, we're exchanging one means of force for another. And that may not be a good, a good way of doing it. Instead, I think, you know, we can go with the, the classic Romans 12 verse, we can overcome evil with good. Uh, so let's, let's deal with it that way instead. I would say that this is one of the questions where you can find out empirically whether or not sexual activity has increased due to more 
prevalence of contraception available. So I'm not sure I would be willing to say that has actually happened. Um, maybe it's true. Maybe they just, you know, correlate in terms of, you know, the social mores of our society. On another note, this is one of those things for me personally, I am not going to complain about the amount of force it takes to pay for contraception. And I realize that we're talking about a significantly small portion of a state's budget or a county's budget or even the federal budget. I'm, I'm really not going to complain about this if this is a huge contributor to the reduction in abortions. I, I know that, you know, many libertarian Christians might disagree that, you know, you know, sin is sin and all theft is, is wrong or all force is wrong. And I completely agree with that. At the same time, this is probably one of those um, battles that, you know what, if, if it means that there are fewer abortions, then I think I'm okay with this little bit of, you know, state encroachment. Uh, that's just me personally. I don't know. What do you guys think? Am I, is that too much? Is that giving away too much? No, you know, I, I think that a lot of times when we're looking at these issues, uh, the, the arm of the state, or, or arms rather, if you want to think of it kind of like uh, a, a sea monster or an octopus or something that strangles you from all angles. It's you mean like Hydra? Yes. <laughs> the monstrosity of the state with its, with its multiple avenues of attack is often so pervasive that you can't just tweak one little thing over here and expect everything else to fall into place because these are systemic problems. And while I would certainly uh, take the position that we should never do evil that good may come, uh, Norman had mentioned uh, Romans 12 earlier, so earlier in, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul makes that kind of rhetorical uh, statement. No, we should never do evil to any degree, no matter what the good end uh, we intend for it is. Uh, nevertheless, you know, one of the things that we see throughout the biblical narrative is that God uses human sin and evil, very often the evil of uh, governments, in order to punish other acts of evil. And that doesn't mean that it's good to do that, but it does mean that it's under the purview of God's sovereignty. So if God is using the theft committed by the state in order to uh, alleviate the number of abortions, that doesn't ethically justify the theft, and no, we shouldn't support that. At the same time, we can trust that God is sovereign over the process and be grateful that he is alleviating, uh, to some extent, the terrestrial evil in the world. Nick, that brings to mind a wonderful quote from Friedrich Hayek uh, that, was, uh, that was highlighted at the end of the Keynes-Hayek rap videos. It was really quite awesome. It, Hayek said once that the curious task of economics is to remind those in power how, how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And that speaks to your point that you don't necessarily know by tweaking one lever the, uh, the ulterior effects that are going to uh, happen as a result of the action. Truth of the matter is that if government didn't pay for and fund some of these, like you know, contraceptive and parent Planned Parenthood programs and all these different things, like there is, if there's a need and a desire to see this come to pass, like we've seen nonprofits and organizations in the market rise up to try to alleviate this through non-governmental means, like that could possibly happen. But the problem 
like it is in many times when there's some sort of charitable uh, type thing. And then at the same time, there's like the government program, you know, contributions in the marketplace and in the charitable space dry up and are not carried out. So, um, you know, from my perspective, I feel like this is a little bit of a like, you know, which, 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 which is best. And it's like, well, actually best is what would probably happen, you know, which is that there'd be organizations that would be privately funded that would provide contraception because it's important to certain people. Government isn't necessary for contraception to be provided free of cost to those who need it. There's private organizations that might do that. And government's not necessary uh, when it comes to preventing abortions. You know, there's lots of other avenues that we can look to to make that happen. And I think one of the biggest failures of this sort of pro-life movement is this idea that they're looking for the federal government to sort of reverse some position um, and champion be the champion of life when the federal government is the champion of death in many, many areas of, <laughs> of life in the world and history, you know? And so it's like, no, we just need to find other avenues. And so I think conceptually, I agree with you that, you know, I would say, yeah, put a gun to my head. Uh, yeah, let's provide free contraception if it reduces the number of abortions. But I'm always interested in us finding that other way. Yeah, yeah. Roe v. Wade was basically the government getting more consistent with itself. Yeah, right. I mean, it's already killing, you know, children it's and already killing, innocent people know, all over the world. Vietnamese and right. <laughs> at the time. One way that instead of simply funding free contraception, perhaps we could make birth control that is otherwise needed uh, needs a prescription to be available over the counter in more prevalent forms. We oh, know, yeah. Libertarians are pretty well known for understanding the unwanted consequences of overregulation of things that are, you know, the difference between over-the-counter drugs and and things like that. So, yeah, it's I mean, there's one way to increase the amount of quote unquote not free but very low cost contraception is to like get the doctors out of it where it's reasonable and let a woman go buy birth control if she wants it. So our final question is from Zachary. How should a libertarian Christian view the border wall? This is, of course, an issue that has come up because of our newly installed president's uh, insistence that we need to make, we, the United States, will make Mexico pay for a wall that extends across the entire border. And this is seemingly a very popular view by his supporters. What is the Christian libertarian view? You know, I think this is really a non-issue because... If Trump does put the border wall up, I just think the Mexicans are going to get over it. You know, this whole issue of the wall has a number of problems with it. Uh, number one, the, the economics just don't make sense. This is going to be a massive infrastructure project, uh, and the United States is completely bankrupt. I mean, we, we know this. The debt is, is astronomical and growing daily uh, by leaps and bounds. And the only way to actually finance this is through more quantitative easing. So it, it like most of the government, requires central banking in order to, uh, to get the green light. So the money's not there. It's vastly expensive. And it's also most likely going to be very ineffective because a lot of the people who are here illegally 
they they get here by coming in on travel or work visas, and then they just overstay the visas. Uh, so a wall doesn't address that issue. It doesn't stop people from coming over on airplanes and then uh, staying when they're supposed to leave. The other thing is it could actually be counterproductive uh, towards getting uh, illegal immigrants to self-deport uh, because once you put the wall up, they can't. those who are already here can't go back. Uh, so even if you take the position that this is, is an issue, um, then the, the, the wall is actually going to backfire uh, fiscally and, and practically. Another issue uh, that as libertarians we should be very skeptical of is that a wall that is supposedly meant to keep other people out uh, can be used to keep the citizens of the country in. And so it's just the same principle that we talk about all the time, that once you have government power put in place and you start establishing precedent for one intention, uh, it's, it's there for successive administrations to use for a completely different and more uh, malevolent purpose. Now, having said that, I, I do think that the uh, Ill illegal immigration, however you want to define define that, uh, is a an issue, but it's an issue because of what it's doing with the welfare state. It's an issue to have people come here and live off the dole and get benefits that all the rest of us have to pay for. That's a problem. But the solution isn't build a wall. The solution is destroy the welfare state, cut off the benefits, and there, thereby you're removing the incentive of people to come here in the first place. Thank you, Nick. I think that was a really well-articulated response to that question. As usual, I think we can put all of our listeners to libertarianchristians.com, where we answer some questions, not necessarily through you know the FAQ, but there is a nearly 10 years worth of resources and articles and information that you can find at libertarianchristians.com. So before we wrap up, I want to do a lightning round, and we're going to have answers to a couple of questions here just as a rapid fire, so forgive us for not having time to elaborate. So question number one, if there is no government, who would build the roads? Well, right now, the roads suck and the government builds them. And so I say, let's allow the market to build them and they could be better. Yeah, it's this whole fallacy that, you know, we have these items and we assume that the only way we could possibly get them is by the state. Uh, when historically, there's plenty of examples of entrepreneurs and free markets providing any, anything and everything that government now does, but doing it better and more efficient. So there's no reason why the free market couldn't provide roads. Yep, and I'd add, if you're really interested in the topic, uh, Walter Block has written a lot of interesting articles about free market road systems and how they might form, how they've been formed in the past, and ways in which these, these problems can be worked out. Good. My answer to that question is, who would build the roads? Well, those who want to and become very good at it. Question number two, all right, what do you think of the big basic income guarantee, also known as the universal basic income. And briefly, the idea is that in lieu of all of the welfare state and sort of regulatory apparatus that supports those who are poor, instead of that, the government uses tax money to simply write them a check. What do you think, Norman? It's a terrible idea. Nick? Yeah, so definitely agree that's a, a terrible idea. It's it's funded through theft. It is economically imbalanced. It has broken window fallacy written all over it. And I would say that um, 
most of the people who will defend this basic income guarantee, universal basic income, will defend it from the position that, well, it will replace already existing wealth transfers that exist. And I say, I doubt that that is what will happen. Uh, We have the history of government um, to look back on in that typically programs are added onto existing programs and other programs never go away. Or if they do go away, they return. And so I would see this as becoming just another level or layer of the wealth transfer problem. Yeah, that's almost exactly my thoughts on it as well, Jason. I, I feel like I could be convinced of this uh, on paper, but that your answer is exactly the reason why I'm incredibly skeptical. Question number three, what would Jesus do if he were elected president? Well, you know, I mean, he turned over the tables of the money changers, so I think he would definitely end the Fed. Yeah, and he'd, uh, he'd definitely bring the troops home and uh, stop all the foreign wars. I imagine he'd probably try to delete at least two, maybe three organiza- uh, you know, government organizations if he could just remember what they were. Wow, if only we had a person run for president that would do similar things. Oh, wait, I think we did. All right, question four. If you were on a deserted island, what book, along with the Bible, would you take along with you? Ooh, that's a good one. I'd probably get like a Boy Scout handbook. I don't know. I got to think about this. Um, there's only one. There's only one right answer to this, and it is Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State with Tyler Martin. Right. So you can make sure maybe Robinson Crusoe. Crusoe uh, <laughs> yeah, get that going. Clearly, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State with Power and Market. I'm gonna just bring my Kindle, which has a ton of books on it. All right. Oh, so question yeah, number five. Cheating. Yep. Question number five, what is the most libertarian movie? I'm going to answer, I'm going to give two answers. I'm going to give the most Christian libertarian movie and the most libertarian movie. The most libertarian movie, in my opinion, is Dallas Buyers Club. And the most Christian libertarian movie is Hacksaw Ridge. I encourage you to go see it. The most libertarian movie is the one that is not copyrighted. (laughs) That was good. (laughs) Not bad, not bad. Uh, I'll I'll take a slightly different tactic and say what I believe I, is one of the best, you know, libertarian kind of TV shows that's ever been done. With the caveat that it is a as not a, sh- a show for children at all, and that is The Wire, uh, which is a terrific study of the drug war and the police state and the function of the media and all of it as well. Question six: Edward Snowden, hero or traitor? Hero, absolutely. Definitely Hero uh, has done a tremendous amount for not only all of the United States, but the people of the world. You know, my opinion is he's Hero because if he wouldn't have done what he did, he would be a traitor to his own conscience. And uh, that's what we're called to do is to do what is um, our conscience is calling us to do and be congruent with our conscience. So, yes, Hero. Yeah, I would agree with you guys. Question seven, who is your favorite founding father and briefly why? My favorite would probably be just per, on a personal basis. I am a big fan of Benjamin Franklin. He's kind of a scientist and appeals to me, of course. Uh, and I think he has, he's just a really interesting person. You know, I should probably say George Wythe, uh, who most people haven't heard of, but he was Thomas Jefferson's mentor. Uh, but the only reason is, is because I'm a distant relative of his. So really, if I'm talking philosophy, I would say uh, probably Patrick Henry, Big fan of the Anti-Federalists. Uh, they called it 
back when nobody else was really uh, expecting the government we have today. And I'll second the Patrick Henry. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I would go with Jefferson, probably because it's a complicated reason why he was a great man. um, And I like complicated reasons. Question eight, should we return to the gold standard? Well, personally, I'm a fan of Bitcoin. I think that's the future, man, Bitcoin. The Bitcoin standard? Yeah, if you're going to have the U.S. dollar, then obviously having it pegged to a a stable commodity like gold is a good idea. Uh, but really, I think the, the most consistent Austro-Libertarian position is to have a free market in money itself. Uh, and therefore, anything that the market chooses to use as money should be money, uh, regardless of legislative decree. Yeah, I'm with you on that too, Nick. I would say to that to that same on that same point the 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 question should we return to the gold standard you know I think the idea of returning to something is is backward looking in a lot of ways so I would say you know let's just have an open conversation about what a market based currency or a currency based on whatever would arise or emerge in a marketplace where the Federal Reserve didn't have a uh, government monopoly on money printing and laws saying that we have to accept Federal Reserve notes and see what manifested. And, and we should point out none of this is, should be construed as investment advice or speculation advice. Do it at your own risk. All right. So the final lightning round question, were the early church Christians socialists? No. No, definitely not. The hallmark that we really have to remember here is even the kind of things that they did that maybe appear quote-unquote socialist um, were were voluntary choices that they were making uh, to support one another uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if it's it's voluntary and non-coercive, it can't really be classified as socialist. That's that's precisely it. If it's voluntary, it's not socialist. Sorry. Yeah, and to some extent, the definition is a little bit anachronistic because socialism is uh, includes the government ownership of the means of production. So, no, not really. On the one hand, I would be willing to say, well, sure they were, but they all wanted to be, and they were allowed to leave if they wanted to. So that doesn't really call classify them as socialists anyway. So because it was all voluntary, that's why it worked. Socialism is not voluntary. That's my response to people who point out that in Acts 2 they were socialists and shouldn't Christians be that way? Nope, not at all. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. As always, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can reach us at Facebook at facebook.com slash libertarianchristians. You can reach us on Twitter at LCI official, and of course, our website at libertarianchristians.com. Thank you for joining us, and we will talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.